This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It is certainly something to be proud of. Hawaii state-funded preschool programs scored in the top tier of the national ranking by the National Institute for Early Education Research. Hawaii was one of only six states to achieve 10 out of 10 quality standards. We talked to Deb Zeisman of the Hawaii Children's Action Network about what this means going forward. They look on an annual basis at how states are doing on public preschool investment, quality, etc. It's really kind of the gold standard that we look to measure ourselves against. And we are thrilled because Hawaii is one of only six states across the nation that scored a 10 out of 10 on its quality benchmark. So that is spectacular. (laughs) We are really just over the moon with how great our program is um, shaping up. So how long have they been tracking this? Oh, the National Institute for Early Education Research has been tracking it for a while. However, Hawaii was not on the charts, really, until 2015 when we established our public preschool program. Some states have had programs much, much longer. I think, again, the the 10 benchmarks they look at are measures of quality, ratios of teacher to children, things like that. And so I think it's great that our program is doing so well. What this report does also show that our program is really small compared to a lot of, of other programs. We are only serving 4% of our four-year-olds and none of our three-year-olds yet. And that's much lower. So on access, we scored 43. Because a lot of other states have invested a lot more taxpayer money to start ramping up and scaling those programs, and that's what we're hoping to see Hawaii so do next. What can you point to to our are very good ranking. <laughs> well, I really just commend our state executive office on early learning. They have held quality to the highest standard from day one. Honestly, above all else, they said we want to build it and do it right. We want to do teacher training. We want to make sure schools are ready and set a solid foundation. And to me, it points to that. We've done that now for a few years, and I think we're ready to scale. So the next step then is you've got a great program in place, it's time to start investing and growing it to serve more four-year-olds, and we are holding ultimately three-year-olds as well. We have heard many champions, you know, talk about the importance of early education and, Mm -hmm. you know, how those young minds just need nurturing at an early age because that's just, you know, makes all the connections for all the learning that's to come. And while we've heard a lot of these voices the funding hasn't always been there. That is the critical next step, I think, is getting. We've seen other states and large counties see taxpayers vote for things like dedicated tax streams to go to scale these programs, real leadership from governors and legislatures, which we hope to see to find find new sources of revenue to push it. We are also seeing a national call from President Biden um, working on some new plans to hopefully see some new federal investment into preschool. We know it's a critical period in life. We also know, and I think it's so critical at this week in particular, as we're looking at national news, that inequity, inequality starts really at birth or even beforehand. We see those gaps from the time a child is born, and we need more strategies like deep investment into things like high-quality affordable child care from birth and high-quality, affordable, or free preschool for three- and four-year-olds to help narrow those gaps. Because we, we still see it. There's huge gaps in kids who get get uh, to go to preschool and kids who don't. Again, remember, this topic are great quality 
public preschool program is only serving 4% of our four-year-olds in the state. So that's wonderful, and we need to start serving a lot more of our children. So that's the glaring omission, is that we're doing, we're doing pretty good serving the kids that we are serving, but there's so many more out there that we're not reaching. Exactly. But I think what's wonderful is Hawaii has really built a great program to start. It is small. It was done that way intentionally. It is, we've, we've got the formula or the recipe figured out, right? The right ingredients to go in to build a high quality program that will see results, that will show, help our kids get off to a great start when they start school. We know we will start seeing it pay dividends on things even like graduation rates down the line. Um, and now it's time to increase the number of kids that were, that are getting that service. So it's the inequities that we need to be mindful of from the get-go. 100%. And I think we have always advocated that where we want to see programs is not necessarily for every child, but we want to see them targeted in particular to the parts of our community, the geographic parts of our community, the lower-income parts where preschool is not accessible, either because there's nothing there, it's not affordable, etc. So that's where we need to do the hard work. And is there anything at the legislature that you're encouraged by? Uh, any funding for, for particular programs, any bills that you've been tracking? This year is a tough one, but there's a bill that's moving, and we hope to see it through, that will help teacher preparation for these programs. And that's a critical piece as well. In order to scale, we know we need to train more preschool teachers, and we also are trying to work on having um, – better pay, right? How do we get more people into that critical field? If we want to scale, we need more workers there. So there is a new program in partnership with UH, some um, philanthropic funders, and the Office of Early Learning that will help with some stipending to help get some folks into the field um, so they can get a bachelor's degree. Um, And we hope to see more of that. That's still the one piece. Last year, there was legislation that set a lofty vision to serve all underserved three- and four-year-old children by 2032. So I think that is a great vision for us in scaling, and now we have to figure out the financing behind that. Now I think it's up to we, the taxpayers and voters, and our state policymakers to find the revenue to to serve more kids. I I think it shows we have a a top-notch program. It's it's unfortunately too small. Yeah, well, you know, I think so many times we hear these reports, you know, in the rankings uh, across the country, and Hawaii falls to the bottom of the list. Um, So it's nice that uh, we're up there on top. Yes, I was grinning when I saw it come out. I did like a a air pump of like, yes, we We also do know uh, there is a lot of research that shows actually that low-quality programs can actually be detrimental. Um, They can actually do more harm than good. So that's also why it's been a priority for us and the Office of Early Learning to make sure that it's a quality program, that we're we're getting the outcomes we want to see, right? We're not just putting money into something that's not good for children, not good for families. So we're we're excited to see growth. (laughs) Well, congratulations and keep up the good work. Great. Thank you so much. That was Deb Zeisman of the Hawaii Children's Action Network talking about the National Yearbook Ranking, where Hawaii has hit the high benchmarks for its quality early education state-funded preschool program. Tune in throughout this week as we will be exploring different issues around equity in education.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ruby Tuesday Hawaii, following health guidelines, offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in Kapolei, Mililani, Moanalua, and Kaneohe. RubyTuesdayHawaii.com. The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to Dr. David Hiranaka, MD and DMD. Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra and Ballet Hawaii. They believe just as you do in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Police officers responded to a domestic violence case in Makiki last week. According to the Star Advertiser, a woman reported her husband threw a Molotov cocktail in the car she was sitting in following an argument. Fortunately, she escaped uninjured. But the first thing that Nancy Creedman at the Domestic Violence Center thought of was if the woman had a safety plan and knew her options. For decades, the center has been there to help families in need. And as the center marks its 30th anniversary this year, it convened what it called a Council of Allies. It's a cross-section of people and organizations who are in positions of power to help victims of domestic violence. We talked to Greedman about the problem, which has only been exacerbated with the pandemic. When you are a prisoner at home, you are at great risk. And up until the stay-at-home orders were vacated, people had no options. They had no way to escape. After the stay-at-home orders were vacated, then people began contemplating what kinds of escape route they might pursue, which means I think we're going to see a continuing increase in requests for help. This is all exacerbated by economics. People who have lost jobs, their options were reduced drastically. And I think we're going to really have to place a spotlight on the need for housing because if you're going to escape or flee, you have to have somewhere to go and you have to be able to stay there. An emergency shelter is a very temporary arrangement, but as a community, when we talk about unhoused or houselessness, we're really not talking about survivors and their children. Um, We're not talking about domestic violence yet, and the Domestic Violence Action Center is really trying to get um, the community to include survivors of domestic violence in the conversation so that resources can be allocated and planning can be undertaken and uh, more programs can uh, be born that are designed for Uh, those who have experienced trauma behind closed doors, which uh, we don't really have when we listen to um, our elected leaders or our community leaders or our um, other community-based organizations talking about those who are houseless. They're talking about chronically mentally ill and they're talking about substance abusers, but they're really not talking about survivors of domestic violence, and that's essential. And I don't know if there was anything this session that you were uh, hoping uh, would emerge, uh, any particular bills or, or, or funding um, for your for programs? Well, uh, we um, 
recently learned that the House and Senate agreed to restore into the judiciary budget where uh, many domestic violence programs uh, have contracts and receive funding, uh, they agreed to restore monies into the judiciary budget um, allocated for domestic violence programs, which is a gigantic uh, step in the right direction. Uh, at the Domestic Violence Action Center, our budget was cut $323,000. That's a, that's a chunk of change and um, that reduces our capacity to help. So the restoration of those monies uh, is really, really meaningful. Uh, Chair uh, Sylvia Luke was uh, instrumental in, in that, and of course, uh, Senator, uh, Senator uh, Dela Cruz and Senator Rhodes um, all were part of the um, you know, decision-making team. Since it's the judiciary budget, Senator Rhodes was in it, and of course, uh, Senator Dela Cruz from WAM and uh, uh, Representative Luke. So um, I am grateful that they recognize uh, the need and the increasing demand and the importance of um, shoring up the safety net because that is clearly what we are. And how do we stack up nationally, you know, as far as funding and then also cases? Um, assessing um, cases is very tricky. We don't have a centralized database that can tell us uh, incidents of domestic violence, and no systems are uh, connected to one another. So we don't know how, for example, we don't know how many people are going to emergency rooms or how many people are sleeping on the beach or how many people are seeing their private physicians or how many people are receiving help from domestic violence programs or how many people are hiding um, at their pastor's home or how many people uh, are calling the police. So there's no way for all of these numbers to be um, combined for us to get a sense of, of how big uh, or how many. Um, really, uh, my best uh, tool is uh, the collection of data that we've been very vigilant about this past year, knowing that uh, there was a story we had to tell. So we've been capturing data on a weekly basis of calls, inquiries, client contacts, safety plans, number of children. Since the pandemic shutdown began last year, our staff, this is last year March through April 2021, our staff had 38,300 contacts with our clients and there were 20,363 children on our caseload. In that period of time, we completed just about 8,600 safety plans with members of the community. I mean, we are very, very busy and people need us to be available to provide them guidance and navigation to a safe place. And are those numbers up from the previous year? Our numbers are up from the previous year. We were not counting numbers like I just told um, the previous year, but what we have done is selected several months, like we compared April, August, June, October, and we just compared February. And there's a significant increase when we compare them a month to month from 2019 to 2020. I just recently went to get my vaccine 
and we were in a movie theater, uh, you know, waiting right. patiently uh, to see if there would, would be any reactions. And uh, Kaiser did run a number of PSAs and, you know, mentioned things about, you know, if you're in a domestic violence situation or child abuse situation, you know, they were there offering help. It's excellent. That's what we need. We need everybody in the conversation. That was kind of our whole point with the Council of Allies, that there, every sector in the community can play a role. Uh, this is not uh, a job uh, exclusively reserved for the Domestic Violence Action Center. So our partners and allies in our healthcare industry can play a very significant role. And so for them to use that opportunity is recognition that they see the role they play and they know that their patients are being harmed behind closed doors. So that's excellent. Law enforcement is not the only or necessarily the best resource for everyone. If you are an immigrant or you're living in an indigenous community or you've relied on the law enforcement before and it hasn't turned out well, you may not want law enforcement to come back to your house or be a place that you seek help. However, when you go for a mammogram or to your primary care physician or to a community health clinic, that could be a point of entry uh, for a person to get resources and information and support and safety planning. And uh, that's true if, you, if you're a, an employer. Uh, even though many people worked from home and that made it difficult for people if they needed help, but businesses have a role to play. And if supervisors and HR professionals are sufficiently uh, informed and capable of having a conversation with somebody uh, about red flags that they see, we want them to do that. Council of Allies really uh, was invented as part of the Domestic Violence Action Center's 30th anniversary. It just so happens that it's uh, in alignment with the increasing need and the, and the recognition of the problem that was made more visible by the pandemic. Okay, so if you could get a birthday present, what would you wish for? <laughs> <laughs> I would wish for collective investment and prioritizing by the community about the seriousness of domestic violence. If we do not name the problem and we do not devise appropriate responses, uh, we will just continue to put Band-Aids on a big problem. Safe families are really at the core of a healthy community. And if we connect the dots, we can see that Children are going to school, people are numbing their pain with drugs, uh, people are uh, entering into um, relationships when they get older, there are adverse health impacts. Uh, there are many, many ways that domestic violence is um, penetrating our community's life. And so there's a role we each play and if everybody could do what they can, um, if they know someone that they're uh, worried about or have concerns about or notice might be problems, now's a good time to reach out to them and uh, let them know that you're concerned, um, let, let them know that you're listening with an open heart and that there are resources in the community available to help them. That was Nancy Creedman of the Domestic Violence Action Center. To help mark its 30th anniversary of its existence in Hawaii, it is launching a special community gift drive this weekend. It's called Mahalo to Moms. And on Saturday, May 2nd, people are asked to drop off a gift at Ward Village from 11 to 2 p.m. 
They're at the corner of Oahe and Ward Avenues. The hope is to provide the 250 moms in their program with something nice for Mother's Day. It's also partnered with Lanikai Bath and Body and Coffee Talk with online donations if you can't drop by in person. Head to our website for links on how you can help the Mahalo to Moms program. Honolulu Civil Beat has a story today exploring why some Pacific Islander communities hardest hit by COVID-19 aren't eligible for federal help. Reporter Anita Hofschneider joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this story affects, gosh, I guess Micronesians, folks from the Federated States of Micronesia, correct? Yeah, it sort of depends how you define Micronesian. You know, some people just use it to refer to people from the FSM and also more broadly from the whole Micronesian region. Today we're talking about people from three nations that have treaties with the U.S. um, so they can migrate freely back and forth. And this is basically a national security treaty that enables the U.S. to have um, control over the the Western Pacific and, and, you know, protect Hawaii from, you know, what they perceive as national security threats. And so... Um, these nations are Palau, the Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia. So as you know, citizens from those countries come and live in the U.S., and some of them have been living and working here for decades, um, and they were really hit hard by COVID, but unfortunately they're not able to access this new federal program that is supposed to help uh, reimburse funeral costs for people who um, you know, lost a loved one in the U.S. to coronavirus. Yeah, when I first uh, saw the press release last month about the uh, help the federal help for the funerals. I thought, wow, that's a biggie. Uh, but what it turns out, then a lot of these folks aren't eligible. Yeah. So what's interesting about this program is that you know the Democratic Congress and the Biden administration rolled it out, and it's immigrant friendly. So it's not just for U.S. citizens. It's people who are considered quote unquote qualified aliens can apply. So for example, if you're a green card holder, you can apply to this. And so. That's what was striking about this program is it's aimed to help low-income communities of color who have been hit hard by coronavirus. But this is an example of a community that's actually excluded from this program. And it's because of their legal status. They are actually excluded from many federal programs. So they are excluded from FEMA disaster assistance. If there was a big hurricane to hit, they wouldn't be able to get access to you know, cash assistance. They're excluded from food stamps. They're excluded from... TANF, which is another, um, you know, support program. So there's a lot of different federal programs, and this is just the latest one that they can't access. Well, uh, you know, I know that uh, you've done stories about the, yeah, the Medicaid program. Um, you know, they put a pause on that. Uh, but uh, your story mentions uh, the hard-hit Marshallese community over in Arkansas, and we've done some stories about that and have been in contact with uh, the, the leaders there. But there's one interesting fact where you say that what uh, Marshallese over there in Arkansas were like 65 times more apt to die of COVID? Yeah, that was actually from a political article that um, looked really in depth into what was happening there. And 
they were extremely hard hit. So this is important to recognize. This is a national issue. It's not just people who live and work in Hawaii who are affected by this, but all over the country, um, these communities were hit hard by the virus. And they spent, you know, thousands of dollars or have been scrapping together thousands of dollars to pay for funerals for their loved ones. Um, and yet, uh, this, you know, they can't access this program. And so I spoke with an advocate there, Melissa Lelon, who has been working really hard all pandemic to try to, you know, help, you know, families in quarantine and, and help prevent, help them prevent eviction. And she was really looking forward to this program. But she was saying to her, it feels like it's yet another program that they pay into as taxpayers uh, who are legally present in the U.S but can't access. And so she sees it as a systemic injustice. And she's especially disappointed because um, Congress just reinstated Medicaid for the community after a very long time of not having access. And that was something else that made it worse during the pandemic was not having access to Medicaid. Um, but there's still, that's only one program that's been reinstated. Pretty much many others are, they, they still don't have access to, including this one. And U.S. Senator Mizzy Hirono has been uh, trying to kind of right this wrong. Yeah, you know, Macy Hirono has been an advocate for the community on the driver's license issue, where, you know, when they weren't able to get federal driver's license, which was making, you know, people who were bus drivers on Oahu, you know, question whether they'd be able to keep their jobs. Um, or, you know, truck drivers in Oklahoma wonder if they'd be able to, to keep their jobs. And she also, you know, pushed hard for, to reinstate Medicaid. So now she said she's looking at this issue, too, because she also, you know, believes that, they, you know, the community has valid concerns about, you know, being excluded when they were, so many of them died of coronavirus. Yeah, really interesting uh, and glaring omission there in, for those communities hit hard. But thank you so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Honolulu Waldorf School with a mission to educate each child to find meaning, passion, and purpose in life. Accepting applications for on-campus learning for the 21-22 school year at honoluluwaldorf.org. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. It's a reminder that sexual violence is widespread and affects all of us in some way. Prevention requires a community-wide response. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show to hear how all of us can help. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. The University of Hawaii Cancer Center celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. It prides itself on research on the diverse communities in the islands. And April marks Minority Health Month. Did you know that Native Hawaiian men have higher rates of liver cancer? And thyroid cancer seems to strike more Filipino women. We talked to researcher Brenda Hernandez about the racial and ethnic disparities and outcomes. Today, approximately 7,000 individuals in Hawaii are diagnosed with invasive, some form of invasive cancer each year. And that total number continues to rise. There has been progress in, the, in terms of the mortality rates overall in the United States as well as in Hawaii. Deaths from cancer have continued to decrease, which is great, and that's for a number of reasons, depending on the, the types of cancer. But a number of cancers have 
very successfully use early detection methods, and it's been widespread. For example, mammography use in, in the United States is fairly high. And here in Hawaii, we have very high rates of mammography use, and that has shown in our, our breast cancer rates that we have a large proportion of women who are diagnosed at early stages when it can be treated more successfully. And consequently, there have been um, observed decreases in the breast cancer mortality rates. On the other hand, there are cancers that, although the rates are increasing, for example, liver cancer, uh, we don't have very effective screening modalities uh, for early detection of those cancers. And as a result, most of the cancers are diagnosed at an advanced stage when it's more difficult to treat. So for liver cancer, there hasn't been a, gr uh, a large improvement in terms of survival rates. Um, although some of the treatment that is available, has, there have been some successes there. But it continues to be a, a difficulty because of the fact that most cancers of the liver are diagnosed at advanced stages. How do we stack up nationally? Well, overall, our incidence of cancers, if you take all cancers in, in total and compare them to the rest of U the U.S., we do pretty well. However, there are a number of cancers that we continue to see increases in mortality as well as increasing number of individuals diagnosed with those types of cancers. How do we stack up uh, nationally, let's say, with liver cancer? So with liver cancer, we, we have continuously, over the last 10 years, ranked near the top in terms of incidence and mortality, meaning that we have one of the worst rates of newly diagnosed liver cancers as well as um, individuals who are succumbed to that disease. Currently, we rank in the top three, so we're about, we have the third highest incidence rate in the U.S. overall. And liver cancer is a complicated disease because it is caused by multiple risk factors, primarily of which include viral hepatitis, both viral hepatitis B and C, as well as excess use of alcohol. But an increasingly important risk factor is obesity and some of the sequelae that go along with obesity, including diabetes and other metabolic factors. And so uh, here in Hawaii, as well as the rest of the U.S., the increasing rates of liver cancer are primarily attributed to these obesity-related risk factors. And liver cancer affects a lot of Native Hawaiian men. Yes. Over the last several years, we've observed that there are significant ethnic disparities in newly diagnosed liver cancers. So what we primarily see Native Hawaiian men being most affected by liver cancer with the highest incidence rates compared to the other major ethnic groups, and um, that continues to, to be a problem. Men in general have about are affected with liver cancer about three to one in terms of ratio compared to women. So men are more substantially affected by liver cancer. And among men, Native Hawaiian men do have the highest risk. And is it hard to treat? It is because of the fact that it is, for the most part, most of the liver cancers are diagnosed at a late stage. And as a result, it's more difficult and challenging to treat when a cancer is diagnosed at an advanced stage. So you could maybe have the beginnings of liver cancer and just not know it because you just don't have the symptoms? Yes, because there are not, uh, unlike breast cancer, where you know mammography is used to um, screen general populations beginning at certain ages, there isn't the same type of modality used for liver cancers. But what can be used, and there are some key tools that can be used, and, and that mean, includes identifying individuals who may have underlying risk factors that increase their risk for liver cancer. And as I mentioned, viral hepatitis B and C and excessive alcohol consumption, 
as well as obesity and diabetes. What are some of so, the symptoms that you would normally get with liver cancer? So, well, in an advanced stage, you know, you can get, uh, you know, jaundice, which is that yellow, you know, yellowish pigmentation that our individual can show. But generally, you know, at the early stages, it's, it's asymptomatic. There are some early detection tools that can be used in individuals that have some of these underlying risk factors. And that includes a liver ultrasound. So uh, one of the more popular ones is, f- is called a FibroScan. And that's a ultrasound that can be used on the liver specifically. And it can de- detect early fibrosis of the liver. That means scarring of the liver that can indicate chronic liver disease developing in the individual. And so as far as then prognosis, if, you know, unfortunately we don't have screening tools, are we conducting any research to reach out to these communities just to let them know? Yes, there are a number of research studies going on that are specifically evaluating the risk of liver cancer and the pathogenesis of liver cancer in different populations in Hawaii, and that includes um, some of the research done through the multi-ethnic cohort, which is a cohort that was a study that is going on both in Hawaii and in Los Angeles County, and it first began several decades ago in the early 90s where individuals who are residents of Hawaii and Los Angeles County were identified and agreed to participate and to to be followed over time with questionnaires and collection of different um, biospecimens, including blood collections that could be used to study the etiology of different cancers. So these individuals were followed over time to identify those who developed and didn't develop cancers, and so they could be compared in terms of exposure assessment. So some of the studies going on here include studies that are looking at individuals who developed liver cancer and did not develop liver cancer, as well as individuals who have um, you know, underlying risk factors that may increase the risk of liver cancer. And does it affect men of a particular age, or can it strike young men as well? well generally, our, the average age of um, liver cancer diagnosis is about 66, about 65, 66 years old. So it's you know, a, a disease generally of, of older individuals, as are on the average most cancers. As an individual with underlying risk factors, the older they get, there are, is an increasing risk. So individuals with chronic liver disease are definitely individuals that um, would normally be followed by their physicians to be able to detect any liver cancer development that arises out of that chronic liver disease. The interesting part about Hawaii is that we are a multi-ethnic population. And as a result, um, our multi-ethnic population represents not only different racial and ethnic backgrounds, but also, so that means, you know, differences in genetic risk, but also differences in lifestyle, including diet. And so a lot of the research that has come out of the University of Hawaii Cancer Center is focused on these uh, racial and ethnic differences in order to be able to ascertain why there are differences in different risk factors and whether or not they're linked to genetic and or lifestyle factors, including diet. And so we do continue to see some really interesting differences in the um, incidence of various cancers here in Hawaii among our major ethnic groups. One of the cancers that um, we do continue to see a difference is is thyroid cancer, which thyroid cancers in general have been growing, have been increasing in incidence over the last several decades here in Hawaii as well as the rest of the country, although those rates are, some of those increases have been slowing down in recent years. However, here in Hawaii, we continue to see some major ethnic differences, including particularly high rates among Filipino females. And that has been a subject of a lot of attention here because we don't know exactly why 
individuals of uh, females of Filipino heritage have a higher risk of thyroid cancer, but there is research going on that continues to look at that. That was Brenda Hernandez, co-director at the UH Cancer Center, who was also with the Hawaii Tumor Registry. The UH Cancer Center offers neighbor islanders an opportunity to take part in clinical trials here in Honolulu. Under the Ticket for the Cure program, donations help with airfare. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, working to address the impacts of COVID-19 by increasing local food supply, investing in youth with scholarships, and helping to support the needs of the most vulnerable island residents. HawaiiCommunityFoundation.org. During a time in our country when our citizens are so deeply politically divided, there's been lots of reflection on another era when the United States were divided states. We thought we would explore Hawaii's participation in the Civil War. Did you know the Civil War began and ended in the month of April? It lasted four years and claimed so many lives. It was a time when Hawaii exported rice and cotton to the continent when those items were not available in parts of the country because of the war. Interest in the Civil War has been rekindled. Cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon has been in demand to lecture for groups across the mainland over the last several months. Following the siege on our nation's capital back in January, one image that for me is hard to shake is a man using a Confederate flag to beat up officers who were protecting the building and protecting our lawmakers. Napoleon has been researching the island's ties to the Civil War for a book. We spent time with her recently to learn more. We take you out on a tour of Oahu Cemetery to learn some Civil War history. A lot of people still today don't realize that there were people from Hawaii, some were born and raised here, some immigrated into the islands who fought in the American Civil War. And every time I tell somebody that, their first reaction is, I get the wow what factor. They go, what? Wow, I didn't know that happened. So it's, it's been a hidden story for generations now, and it's become a passionate research topic for me. And I've been in the process of writing a book for now for three years. It's called Hawaii Sons of the Civil War. And so I'm writing bios about the men that I know about and what were, who were they before the war, what, what did they do in the war, and then what they did after the war. And so we're here at Oahu Cemetery because we have a number of uh, more than 30-something people, that, men who are buried here, who fought in the American Civil War. And we're standing before the gravestone of Nathaniel Bright Emerson. Nathaniel Bright Emerson was the son of missionaries. The first American Protestant missionaries arrived in Hawaii in 1820, and his parents arrived uh, later. And he was born and raised in the islands, and he was taught Hawaiian. He knew Hawaiian very, very well. And then um, he, when he gets older, as an elder teenager, he goes off to college on the mainland like uh, many missionary sons did. 
because they didn't have, there was uh, Oahu, Oahu College here and uh, the missionaries, uh, which was built specifically for missionary children. And now it's known as Punahou School. But they built that school so they could have regular American education in, in their, their children could have education here. Uh, Nathaniel Bright Emerson went to uh, Williams College in Massachusetts. And he was a junior when the war broke out in 1861. And right away, like many students, no matter if they were Hawaiian or non-Hawaiian, they dropped out of school and enlisted right away to join the war. And because his parents were missionaries who were from the north, all the mission, early Protestant missionaries were from the northern states. And so all the children had very um, extensive knowledge about America, especially in the New England states where their parents were from. And so naturally, uh, their parents were for the Union and the children became for the Union. So that's why he ended up in the Union Army as a private. He enlisted, and the reason he became a private and not a higher rank like another one of the Hawaii sons is because he did not finish college. He dropped out of school, so he was given the title of uh, private. Another missionary son who was a friend of Emerson's went to school with him at Oahu College and, and everything. They were about the same age. He was a senior when the war broke out, but instead of dropping out like Emerson, he decided to finish his degree, get his degree, which was a good decision on his part because when he enlisted, because he had a college degree, he was given the rank of captain right off the bat. Right, the officer. Emerson was a private, but Armstrong became a captain. So it was a very important distinction there. Do we know yeah. what battles he, he uh, fought, fought in? Uh, he fought with the 1st Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, uh, and many of our guys uh, fought in Massachusetts. After the war, he went to medical school on the mainland right after the war and became a physician. And then uh, he married a, a woman there and they came back to Hawaii and settled here for the rest of their lives. And he became a physician here. One time he was inspector at Kalaupapa and um, he, he was very prominent in the community. And also he had a high interest in Hawaiian culture, especially in the hula. And he went around with his, his wife uh, gathering information from native Hawaiians about hula and he ended up writing about hula. Anybody who does dances, or teaches hula anyway, know about Emerson's uh, writings about the hula. Uh, so he became quite famous here afterwards. Okay. So he's buried here at the entrance of Oahu yeah, Cemetery. Yeah, he was uh, wounded two times in the war, but he well, they were relatively minor, and he, he survived that and went back to his unit and, and, and uh, mustered out at, in 1865 after the war. During a time in our country when our citizens are so deeply politically divided, there's been lots of reflection on another era when the United States were divided states. We thought we would explore Hawaii's participation in the Civil War. Did you know the Civil War began and ended in the month of April? It lasted four years and claimed so many lives. It was a time when Hawaii exported rice and cotton to the continent when those items were not available in parts of the country because of the war. 
Interest in the Civil War has been rekindled. Cemetery historian Nanette Napoleon has been in demand to lecture for groups across the mainland over the last several months. Following the siege on our nation's capital back in January, one image that for me is hard to shake is a man using a Confederate flag to beat up officers who were protecting the building and protecting our lawmakers. Napoleon has been researching the island's ties to the Civil War for a book. We spent time with her recently to learn more. We take you out on a tour of Oahu Cemetery to learn some Civil War history. A lot of people still today don't realize that there were people from Hawaii, some were born and raised here, some immigrated into the islands who fought in the American Civil War. And every time I tell somebody that, their first reaction is, I get the wow what factor. They go, what? Wow, I didn't know that happened. So it's, it's been a hidden story for generations now, and it's become a passionate research topic for me. And I've been in the process of writing a book for now for three years. It's called Hawaii Sons of the Civil War. And so I'm writing bios about the men that I know about and what were, who were they before the war, what, what did they do in the war, and then what they did after the war. And so we're here at Oahu Cemetery because we have a number of uh, more than 30-something people, that men who are buried here, who fought in the American Civil War. And we're standing before the gravestone of Nathaniel Bright Emerson. Nathaniel Bright Emerson was the son of missionaries. The first American Protestant missionaries arrived in Hawaii in 1820, and his parents arrived uh, later. And he was born and raised in the islands, and he was taught Hawaiian. He knew Hawaiian very, very well. And then um, he, when he gets older, as an elder teenager, he goes off to college on the mainland like uh, many missionary sons did because they didn't have, there was uh, Oahu, Oahu College here and uh, the missionaries, uh, which was built specifically for missionary children. And now it's known as Punahou School. But they built that school so they could have regular American education in, in their, their children could have education here. Nathaniel Bright Emerson went to Williams College in Massachusetts. And he was a junior when the war broke out in 1861. And right away, like many students, no matter if they were Hawaiian or non-Hawaiian, they dropped out of school and enlisted right away to join the war. And because his parents were missionaries who were from the North, all the mission, early Protestant missionaries were from the Northern states. And so all the children had very um, extensive knowledge about America, especially in the New England states where their parents were from. And so naturally, uh, their parents were for the Union and their children became for the Union. So that's why he ended up in the Union Army as a private. He enlisted, and the reason he became a private and not a higher rank like another one of the Hawaii sons is because he did not finish college. He dropped out of school. So he was given the title of uh, private. Another missionary son who was a friend of Emerson's went to school with him at Oahu College and, and everything. They were about the same age. He was a senior when the war broke out. But instead of dropping out like Emerson, he decided to finish his degree, get his degree, which was a good decision on his part because when he enlisted, because he had a college degree, he was given the rank of captain right off the bat. Right, the officer. Emerson was a private, but Armstrong became a captain. So it was a very important distinction there. Do we know what yeah. battles he, he uh, fought, fought in? Uh, he fought with the 1st Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry. Uh, and many of our guys uh, fought 
in Massachusetts. After the war, he went to medical school on the mainland right after the war and became a physician. And then uh, he married a, a woman there and they came back to Hawaii and settled here for the rest of their lives. And he became a physician here. One time he was inspector at Kalaupapa and um, he, he was very prominent in the community. And also he had a high interest in Hawaiian culture, especially in the hula. And he went around with his, his wife uh, gathering information from Native Hawaiians about hula, and he ended up writing about hula. Anybody who does dances, or teaches hula anyway, know about Emerson's uh, writings about the hula. Uh, so he became quite famous here afterwards. Okay. Yeah. So he's buried here at the entrance of Oahu yeah, Cemetery. Yeah, he was uh, wounded two times in the war, but he, well, they were relatively minor, and he, he survived that and went back to his unit and, and, and uh, mustered out at, in 1865 after the war. Emerson, who was born in Wailua, attended Harvard and the New York College of Physicians and Surgeons. He also served as a physician at the Iwile Prison. His books, The Sacred Songs of Hula and Pele and Hi'iaka, are still used today. We continue our cemetery tour to learn about the Civil War story of Hawaii Supreme Court Justice. So we're here in a family plot, and there's a very large tombstone of Alfred S. Hartwell, born 1836, died 1912. He is buried here with his wife, Charlotte. What can you tell us about Mr. Hartwell? Well, why is he so important in our history? Hartwell's important not only for the Civil War, but also for the history of Hawaii. He grew up in Massachusetts and he became an attorney and was familiar and had political ties to officials that went to the mainland and did political things for the kingdom. And so early on he was asked to come out here to be an advisor to the monarchy as an attorney and helped in that way. But prior to that he served in the U.S. Civil War and he started off at a lower rank and he worked his way up and by the end of the war, he was a brevet brigadier general. Brevet means the rank was given to you at the time of war. So you did something special in the war, and then they, they bump your rank up to brevet instead of just general. So it was an important distinction between just a plain general and a brevet general. He's most important to me in the Civil War, not so much in the battles he fought and things, but the battle he fought for equality within the U.S. Colored Troops, which were established in the third year of the war. Prior to that, from 1861, starting in 1861, colors weren't allowed. They were allowed to serve in the Army or the Navy, but they weren't allowed to carry weapons because they thought that if colored troops had weapons, they would kill the, the white guys and take over. And so, they became cooks and servants and assistants to the officers, letter carriers, and things like that. Other things that had to do with actual fighting. They didn't, weren't allowed to do that till later. So Hartwell was interested in the fact that when in the third year of the war, they founded the U.S. and United States Color Troops because the attrition rate of casualties and deaths within 
the white ranks was getting so high. You know, for the first skirmishes and battles in the war was, oh, maybe a couple hundred men died, and then it came to be. And then as weeks and months went on, it went to the thousands, and then it went to the tens of thousands in a single day. So he was interested in that. And, and so that's why they had to form the United States Color Troop to bring in more fresh bodies to fight in the war. Uh, and then once they did, were able to fight in the war. Unfortunately, they were given, uh, the color troops were given less pay. They didn't get much anyway in the war, <laughs> the Caucasians, but the, the color troops got even less than that. And they, their supplies were different. They didn't, and at the beginning, they didn't have the correct, any official uniforms, government issue uniforms. They had to pay for their own uniforms, things like that. But then that changed largely because of the work of Hartwell and others that uh, thought that was very, very wrong. It was unequal. You know, they were putting themselves on the line in battle and on ships and things like that. Why shouldn't they get the same pay? Right. Equal pay, equal work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, but it wasn't an easy road. There was a lot, a lot of political debate and pushback. No, no, we can't do that, you know. And so that was a, it was an interesting uh, situation there. So the general then, he, uh, he, he uh, fights in the war. He decides to come to Hawaii. He decides to come back because he had prior connections here. And he decided to come and settle with his wife and family. And he did that. And then um, because he, he was still interested in politics and everything, he was appointed to be Supreme Court Justice. First he was a private attorney, and then he became Supreme Court Justice and fought for civil rights and early on, you know, and other political issues of the kingdom. He was uh, kind of wishy-washy on his support of the kingdom or not. <laughs> uh, he went back and forth somewhat. But in the end, he was supportive of the kingdom. Uh, so, keeping if, the kingdom. so if we were to go down to a Leolani building, yes, you can we see would a see very large portrait of him in the gallery there, portrait gallery of the uh, justices. Yeah. Does it make mention of his Civil War participation? No, no, no. but uh, just the name and birth date and death date, I think. So, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know his story. And yeah, he's a Hawaii son. Now, there's two categories of Hawaii sons of the Civil War. There's those that were born and raised in, in the islands like Emerson, and then there were those that came after the war and settled here. So he's one of the ones that settled after the war. But I include him as, as being a, a Hawaii son because he stayed here for the rest of his life and contributed a lot to the, to the history of Hawaiian Islands. Alfred Stedman Hartwell served as Chief Justice of the Hawaii Supreme Court from 1907 to 1911. We have been walking the cemetery with historian Nanette Napoleon to discover the little-known Hawaii ties to the Civil War. Tomorrow, we get to know the Grand Army of the Republic. That is it for today. Tomorrow we hear about education and 
education inequalities. Do you have a story to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 